As the children leave, uh, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 is, is where we find ourselves. We're in the, uh, we're going to start in verse 30. And we're going to work our way down through the end of the chapter. As we read this uh, portion of Scripture, I want you to remember that we are in the midst of a passage where people are trying to figure out who Jesus is. Is it true? Is that song that we sang before I got up here to pray, is it true? Is the goodness of Jesus really going to satisfy my deepest longings? Will it actually bring me joy, joy that the world offers but never delivers? Will we actually find, come what may, I will find joy in Christ. Is it true? And so you have all of these people in John chapter 7 trying to figure this out. And as we come, I was reminded of this uh, by my wife. We were taking a walk, and she said she had remembered that the Word of God does these three things. And as we read the Word of God, I pray that this would work itself out in us, that the Spirit of God would be working this out, that we... The Word of God would confront us with our sin, that it would comfort us with the gospel, and that it would then conform us into the image of Christ. Those three things. So here are the word of the Lord from John chapter 7. May it do that. Confront, comfort, and conform us. Beginning in verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I, where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go up to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophets arise, arises from Galilee. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. We are at the Feast of Booze. We are at a great banquet day. Now, in the midst of the banquet day, I want you to think about this. 
by way of introduction. When we think about the harvest being brought in, we think about Thanksgiving. I mean, that's really the harvest holiday for all of us. And I want you to think about it in this way. When, when Thanksgiving comes, there's great preparation that, that occurs uh, in homes. We see that your know, tables are set. Matter of fact, you might actually use rooms that you never use the rest of the year, right? You actually might even use something called a linen napkin. You know, some children are like, what is this piece of cloth here? We're not sure what this is supposed to be. Some families will go to the point where they will decorate with, with name cards where people in your family know where to sit. That way, you know, um, Joe and Jenny might not get in an argument about politics or about this or that or about money or those kind of things. There's great preparation that's going on. And so everything needs to be set correctly. There might even be like a cornucopia, you know, one of those horns of blessing that just talks about the overflowing abundance. And then when the great day comes, right, after everything has been prepared, I mean, you've brined the turkey, you know, you've smoked the turkey or fried the turkey or baked the turkey or I don't know what else you can do to turkey. You can do a lot of stuff with turkey, right? You know, you, you have appetizers and it's the one time of the year where I actually think and actually take my thought that I am not going to fill up on appetizers at Thanksgiving because I know that the feast is to come. And there's like cheese and crackers, and I'm like, I don't want any of that. You know, I, I want what's coming, right? You know, matter of fact, in our family, my dad even like has steamed dumplings that he brings, and I have no idea. I don't know if it was like some, you know, resemblance to like Christmas story and, you know, all that kind of stuff, but he brings dumplings, and I'm like, I can't touch them because I got to wait. And then the table is set, right? So the table is set, and you have things like, you know, the turkey is there, and then you have stuffing, right? So think about a great spread in front of you for Thanksgiving. You got a turkey, you got stuffing, and you got not just your know, regular stuffing, but you have oyster stuffing. And you not only have one type of gravy, you have what's called giblet gravy. And if you don't know what that is, you don't want to know what it is because you probably won't eat it. All right. And then not only do you have different types of gravy, but then you have like, um, you know, you have green bean casserole, sweet potato casserole. You got mashed potatoes. You got cranberry sauce. You got the stuff that comes out of the, the can with the big shrunk, you know, and then you got like regular cranberry sauce that somebody makes or something like that. And you're there and you're ready and the table is set. And then you got bread, you got sourdough rolls, or maybe you, you, know, you, you went to the store and you cheated and you got those Hawaiian rolls because they're really, really soft. And you got, and you know what else you have? You have real butter this year, right? Like real butter, not like that, that terrible yogurt stuff, right? I mean like real butter. And you're like, oh, it's gonna be good, right? And so you're excited about this. And then, you know, not only that, you, you actually get the best wine of the year. Wine that actually you have to uncork. Rather, it doesn't even come out of a box this year, right? Like, we're going to do it up this year, right? This is how we're going to do it. It's going to be amazing, you know? And then even for kids, you get like sparkling cider, and, you, and it's all set. And then you have the, the hope, the hope that you have apple pie afterwards, right? After you've gorged yourself with apple pie and sweet potato pie, maybe pumpkin pie, depending on where you're from. We always had that as well as like coconut cake and everything else. I have no idea why we had that. I think it's just because my granddaddy liked it, you know? So you have all of this being set up. So I want you to see this. And in the midst of this, everybody comes to the table. And, and just for a brief moment, all the children are well behaved because they're so excited. And you're gathered around the table, you know, and the father of the meal, you know, he, he begins to pray and he goes, we want to talk about the great provision of the Lord. And look at what is like set out in front of us today. This is the provision of the Lord. And right as he gets ready to pray, somebody stands up and says, if anybody's hungry, come to me. And you're like, what? If anybody's hungry, come to me. It's right in front of us. Because everything that's been talking about, this is what Jesus does at this feast. 
This is what Jesus does in the midst of the Feast of the Booze. Now, I want you to think about this in, in this way. And, the, and the, the main overarching point is this, is that Jesus is the living water that satisfies us. Jesus is this living water. Jesus declares this. I want you to think about it uh, in this way. See, the Feast of Tabernacles is like our Thanksgiving. You know, it's a, this great camping festival. We set up these booths, so everybody from Jerusalem comes, and they have this, this rite that occurs. And here, here's what happens. So it, um, for seven days, they take a, a golden flagon of water, right? It was filled with water from the pool of S- Siloam and was carried in procession by the high priest back to the temple. And so everybody is there. So Jerusalem is swelling with people. Everybody's in their booze, and everybody's got a branch in one hand, and they've got a piece of fruit in the other, and it's the provision of the Lord, the provision of the Lord. And the great high priest, is he goes down to this pool and gets this water, and he does this water rite with it. And as you go around, the people, the, the temple choir, they're all singing from Psalms 113 to 118, the Hallel Psalms. And, the, and as the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, there were three blasts of the shofar. And so these people had, you know, uh, Josh and Carol Nye up here, you know, blowing their trumpets, right? As we're wandering around with this water. And as this water would come, all the pilgrims were shaking their branches uh, and, and shaking their, their fruit. And they all said this, they said, give thanks to the Lord, and so they're seeing the provision. And so the people would shout, give thanks to the Lord. And so some of you, you know, uh, some people might need coffee or something. We're going to try it today. I want you to say, give thanks to the Lord. I want you to say it three times. And I want you to say it loud with great joy. Come on, you can do better than the kindergartners here, okay? All right? So give thanks to the Lord. Ready? Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Some of you who are asleep are like, what, what are we thanking them for? What's going on, right? So that's where we are in the midst of this. So this water was offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice, along with the daily drink offerings of wine. The wine and the water were, pulled into the, were poured into their respective silver bowls and then poured out before the Lord. And the provision of, of water and the desert wanderings in the book of Exodus. And there was a thought that the pouring out, so they were thinking about this. They were thinking as they pour this water, they were thinking about you know, Exodus chapter 17, where God brought water out of a rock and provided for all the thirsty Israelites as they're wandering around Canaan in the desert. Or they're thinking about Numbers chapter 20, where Moses actually struck the rock and struck the rock and water came out of the rock. But because he disobeyed the Lord, he wasn't able to see. But they're thinking about Numbers 20. They're thinking about Exodus chapter 17. They're thinking about water in the wilderness and that God provided. God provided for all the thirsty Israelites. But even more so, they're thinking about God has provided the rain by which we can actually hold this fruit up and hold these sheaves up and say that the Lord this past year has provided for us. You see, if you don't have rain, you don't have life. If you don't have water, everything dies. So they understand that. But even more so, they're actually thinking about this with a future thought in this way that there will In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, it says, On that day there shall be a fountain on the great day when the Messiah comes, when when the Christ comes. On that day there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. 
they're thinking about Ezekiel chapter 47, this idea of water rushing from. In Ezekiel chapter 47, uh, Ezekiel's brought, um, in, in verse 1, it says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. And what was happening was, so from this temple, Ezekiel has this vision that water will come up out of the temple. And remember, this is a mountain kingdom, okay? I mean, this is a mountain kingdom, but this well of water will, will come out of the temple. And from the temple, it will flow towards the east, and it gets deeper and deeper. It will eventually go into places that are salty, and it will actually make these salty, which is representing sinfulness, it will make them fresh water. And so there will be life, and you will see this abundance of life. So the people, when they're pouring forth the water, when, when that great high priest is pouring forth the water, there's this idea of past provision— current sustenance, but also future hope that the Messiah will bring about streams of living water that will emanate from the temple to all the people of the earth. This is what we see. This is like the pinnacle of this. And in verse, um, and we see this. So Jesus waits until the climax, and then look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day And and this is what's going on, this great water ritual. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. At this apex. I mean, all that this is, and here's what Jesus is saying. He goes, the whole Feast of Tabernacles is about me. This temple that you think will will bring streams of living water, I'm the temple. If you thirst and if you come to me, you will have life. You see, Jesus says, I am the living water that's satisfied. Now, as we think about this, I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you thirsty? <laughs> you know, J.C. Ryle actually says these verses um, in his Bible. He goes, sometimes within the scriptures, some of you have uh, Bibles that have red letters. The rest of it's written in black. He said, some scriptures should be written in golden letters. He goes, 37 through 39 should be written in golden letters because we see the salvation of our souls found right here. Are you thirsty? This is not talking about physical thirst, but it's using a a physical need. I mean, if if you've ever been really thirsty, wandering in the desert, and you're cotton-mouthed, all you want is water, just a little bit of water. And what he's saying here spiritually about our souls, he's talking about thirst for our souls so that we might see the, the, the value of our souls, to know that we are, you know, not good people, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism today, you know, basically says, it. I, I love what it says um, in the Heidelberg because it says, and let me just uh, quote it again, you know, can we make this payment ourselves? Meaning that, you know, God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Well, the only way that you can pay this is by with your life, and so you die, and you're under the judgment of God. But if another pays this, but can we make this payment ourselves? And Heidelberg says, certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. And, and when we think about this, 
is that as our debt increases, because we know that we're not okay, we know that we need a Savior. And that, that begins to make our souls thirsty. Let me describe it in this way. A thirsty soul is to feel the burden of unforgiven sin. To not know where to turn for relief. To have a conscience sick and ill at ease and to be ignorant of the remedy. To discover that we are dying, dying daily, increasing our debt daily, and we're unprepared to meet God. To to have some clear view of our own guilt and wickedness, yet be in utter darkness about absolution. This is the highest degree of pain. Not pain which is physical, but pain which is spiritual and in our soul. The pain which drinks up the soul and spirit. We thirst thirsting after pardon, thirsting after forgiveness, absolution, peace with God. It is a craving of really awakened conscience, wanting satisfaction and not knowing where to find it, walking in dry places and unable to rest. This was the type of thirst that we see in Acts chapter 2, where when Peter gives his Pentecost sermon, that the people say, what shall we do to be saved? We have heard and believed, and our souls are longing. Our souls are thirsty. This is the same thing that occurs um, in the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 after the the earthquake shakes and and the prisoners are released. And he sees that, you know, that Paul and Silas are still there. And he goes, what must I do to be saved? There's a thirsting of soul. Where can I find forgiveness? Where can I find lasting joy? Where can I go? Well, we see this in the midst of of Jesus when he says this. You see, Jesus is the living water that satisfies us. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts. Brothers and sisters, are, are you thirsty? He says, let him come to me and drink. He says, come to me. Don't come to anything else. Come to me. And you see what had happened, what had happened in the Old Testament is we see that this idea of of people going to the wrong thing occurs over and over again. We see this in in Jeremiah chapter 2. We see Jeremiah chapter 2, it says, because people will go to false oasises that promise water but don't deliver. You know, one of the things that, um, one of the prettiest places I've ever flown into, I don't know if you've ever flown in there, is Salt Lake City. Like when you're flying into Salt Lake, anybody here flown into Salt Lake City? I'm just kind of curious. You know, and if, you, if you're looking out the, out the window, you see these snow-capped peaks, and you see this beautiful lake, you know, that's down there, the Great Salt Lake. And I remember flying into Salt Lake City, and Katie and I were able to go to Moab maybe like before COVID, and it was a great trip. And I remember meeting a, a family who had, been, who had been in Salt Lake City their entire lives, and I said, boy, the, salt, the Great Salt Lake, do you guys, that's beautiful. And they were like, it's, it might be beautiful from the air, but that's a smelly place. He goes, and I said, so nobody actually recreates on the lake? They're like, not for very long, not unless you want to get sick. Not, not unless you want to be around a cesspool. I said, you mean there's no like, you know, homes built around the Great Salt Lake? And they're like, no. You see, the Great Salt Lake from afar looks beautiful, but the closer you get to it, it's a false oasis. And the Great Salt Lake will not satisfy your thirst. In the same way that, you know, people who are stranded on a boat, 
in the middle of the ocean, if they drink salt water, they only get more thirsty. It never satisfies. You see, in Jeremiah chapter um, 2, verses 12, it says this, you know, speaking about this to the the people of God. Um, This is a great section of of really them seeking after in false cisterns. It says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people, the people of Israel. Again, the people had he's redeemed, he's saved, he's prospered, he's loved. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then, is he, why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and uh, Talpanese have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley and know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. I mean, that is an indictment against the people of God. And so the question becomes, what are we pursuing that are false cisterns? Think about this for a second. I heard a pastor say, some people uh, recognize that they're broken. They recognize that because when you look at your life, you, you see broken relationships. Um, you don't um, do what you're, you're called to do. <laughs> you're not who you're called to be. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. Moms, any moms out there, have you felt utterly defeated with your children this week? In the midst of the difficulty, have you ever made a promise that you would, not, you would cease to yell at your children only to find yourself yelling at your children an hour or so later. How about men? Are there men out there that have promised to themselves that this would be the last time I look at pornography, only to find themselves viewing it day after day, maybe even within an hour of saying, Lord, I'm not going to do it anymore. It seems as if the rooster crows three times. Or maybe you recognize, maybe men or women, that that you have a controlling spirit and you have hurt many people by trying to organize and lead their life for them. That you have driven away others because you wanted to control them or their circumstances. Or have you told yourself that 
you wouldn't drink anymore. And yet you showed up at church with a mild headache and a little hungover. Ever happen? Or maybe you're a, you're a teenager who's trying to follow Jesus, and every time you look at Instagram, or Be Real, or Facebook, or Snapchat, that you have this great insecurity that you're not measuring up. And you recognize that there's a brokenness inside of me, a deep brokenness. I think if we're honest, I think everybody in the world goes through that, that bit of understanding about that I'm a broken person, surrounded by broken people. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do with that guilt? Well, some people, and I heard a pastor say this, some people either turn to heroin or haagen as It's about the same thing. And I'm, and I'm here to tell you, I'm not for heroin, not at all. But some people get hooked on the drug because just for a second, it soothes the pain of the brokenness around them. They just want to feel something that is not the pain and suffering that they feel. And I'm here to tell you, now, as much as I'm not against heroin, I'm kind of for haagen by the way, all right? But how many people will take a pint of haagen and at the beginning, there's great hope for comfort for your souls, but by the, by the time you sit in one sitting and go through the entire pint, at the end of the pint, what you find are guilt and shame and a little bit of sadness. Anybody ever experienced that? Anybody ever get to the bottom of a bag of chips? I don't know. Any, I, anybody, anybody ever like open a can of Pringles and not eat all the way to the bottom? I'm just kind of wondering, right? And the only thing we find at the bottom of the can is, regu- is regret and guilt and shame. And then we make promises to ourselves that we'll never do that again. Or, or that's actually good. Because you know what happens sometimes when you get to the bottom of the pint of haagen or the end of the can of Pringles? You know what you say? Like, you know what? I don't feel good about myself. I must have had the wrong flavor of ice cream. I know what I need to do. I need to go back to the store and go get another one because I know if I just find the right flavor for the right feeling, I can actually eat my feelings and feel good about myself. Heroin haagen we're going to do something to make ourselves feel a little bit better. We're going to make ourselves to feel a little bit better. Um, but at the end of that, what we find is guilt and shame. What Jesus says is so much better. Because what Jesus says in, in John chapter 7, verse 37, he says, if anyone thirsts, if you recognize the brokenness of yelling at your kids, if you recognize the brokenness of an addiction to pornography, if you recognize yourself in an addiction to alcohol, if you recognize yourself that you're a controlling person and you've driven away people and you recognize the brokenness is actually due to the controlling nature that you have, he says, you know, come to me. If your soul is so thirsty, come to me. And he says, come to me directly. Don't go to some other thing. Don't go to church. Don't go to any ceremonies. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. I mean, everything that we do, from baptism to the Lord's Supper, to the preaching, to the teaching, it's all pointing to Jesus. Come to Him and you will be satisfied. The the beauty of coming to Jesus, the the beauty of coming to Jesus is that there's infinite mercy and compassion. What will He do for us? It says in this way, let him come to me and drink, and whoever believes in me, and that's, that's the deal. You just have to believe. 
in me. Trust in him. As the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this idea of rivers, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, is that we will be filled up. Because you can't overflow until you yourself are filled up. And what we find here is this idea of being filled up in belief in Jesus. This idea of infinite mercy and compassion. That in the midst of coming to Jesus, he is ready to receive all who repent and believe. From the worst of us to the worstest of us. (laughs) He's ready to receive all of us. Notice what it says. It doesn't say um, just the good people, because he wouldn't have anybody. He says, if anyone, anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me. We will find infinite mercy and compassion. We will find a willingness to forgive, pardon, and absolve us from all of our sins. We find that he has the power to change hearts and alter our corrupt nature. We find encouragement to pray and to hear the gospel and to draw near to the throne of grace rather than the the great white throne of judgment as adopted children of the most high God. We actually enter into our father's bedroom and he says, come closer. Let me listen to your prayers because I love you. Not only do we find access, but we we find strength We find comfort in trouble. We find guidance in perplexity. We find help in sickness. We find consolation in death. We find support for those who are grieving the loss of a loved one. We find happiness beyond the grace, reward, and glory. There is an abundant supply. I mean, we could just go on and on to think about what do you have in Christ? There was a a story of a, a little girl And a teacher, a Sunday school teacher says that God can do anything. And this little girl said, I know something that God can't do. And the teacher said, what do you believe that God can't do? And she said, God can never lie. And the teacher's like, you're right. (laughs) Because that's outside of his character. And so when God promises something to you, he always keeps his promises he always, always keeps his promises. Yeah, I quoted um, Ed Welch. Um, let me quote him again. Yeah, from when people are big and God is small. And he says this about, you know, the idea of self-esteem and self-worth. He says this. He goes, the massive interest in self-esteem and self-worth exists because it is trying to help us with a real problem. The problem is that we really are not okay. <laughs> we are not Okay. There's no reason why we should feel great about ourselves. We truly are deficient. The meager props of the self-esteem teaching will eventually collapse as people realize that their problem is much deeper. The problem is in part our nakedness before God. And then he talks about this. You see Jesus in the midst of him quenching our thirst, quenching our parched souls, He says this, this is what Ed Welch says. He says, we have to be really careful about telling people that Jesus will meet all of our needs. He says it in this way. He says, we should be careful about saying Jesus meets all our needs. At first, this has a plausible biblical ring to it. Christ is a friend. God is a loving father. Christians do experience a sense of meaningfulness and confidence in knowing God's love. It makes Christ the answer to our problems. Yet, 
If our use of the term needs is ambiguous and its range of meaning extends all the way to selfish desires, then there will be some situations where we should, we, where we should say that Jesus does not intend to meet our needs, but that he intends to change our needs. Think about that. Jesus will either meet all your true needs or in the midst of coming and quenching your soul, he will change the needs that you have. Because if they are selfish, sinful needs, he will begin to change you and reorient you. And in this bent and twisted and corrupt world, he will begin to straighten you out. Jesus will meet our needs. I mean, think about it. You know, we all have problems. You know, I think that as the church, we should actually be the people of God who say, you know what? It's okay to say we're not okay. We're not. We are not okay. We need living water. I mean, you can go to any um, bookstore, and I mean, I, I don't know, there aren't that many bookstores that even exist anymore. But every once in a while, you'll go to a bookstore and you'll go into a secular bookstore and you know one of the huge sections is this aisle of self-help, right? It's, it's this self-help. And I'm telling you, you know, from anxiety to addiction to anger to self-esteem or self-interest or, you know, these self-help books are building you up and what they're doing is they are offering you salt water which will not satisfy your deepest longings. Only in Christ do we find our deepest longings met. Now, notice what it says, uh, again, in John chapter 7. What he's talking about here is he's talking about, you know, not only are the promises of God, when we drink deeply of Jesus, you know, out of his heart, you know, it actually says that the, the Hebrew there is out of his stomach, out of his belly, you know, essentially out of his soul, out of his, the inward parts of him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, meaning that you are so filled up that you will f there, there will be rivers of living water that flow forward. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, so what he's talking about is that when you come to faith in Jesus, you're actually filled with the, the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit fills you and overflows you so that you become a blessing to all others. I think, too, um, the water image that we see in the Gospel of John is a powerful image. We saw it in John chapter 4 at the woman at the well, where he says, if you will drink of these waters, if you will drink of me, you will be satisfied. But also, I want you to look at this. You know, I want you to think about John chapter 19, when Jesus is on the cross, as it relates to John chapter 7, and, and what the commentary is from John the Apostle. Now again, in John 39, he says this, now this he said about the Spirit, meaning giving the Spirit so that the Spirit of God would overflow whom those he believed. And as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, when we go to John chapter 19, there's another sentence here that I want us to look at. John chapter 19, verse 34. When Jesus is on the cross, I'll start in verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. 
He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. Now, this idea, here's what you need to know. John is not Luke. He's not a medical doctor. So when he talks about blood and the water, he's talking about a metaphor. And what he's talking about is that the blood was spilt so that the atoning sacrifice was met and that we can be saved. But then when the water is flowing at the side of Jesus, there is an image that he's talking about living waters that would fill us and then overflow from the very temple that would emanate outward. And so when the blood and the water flow from the side of Jesus, he's saying that the sacrifice has been made and that the Holy Spirit is getting ready to be poured out. That's what we see there, blood and water working themselves out. Now, the benefit here is this, is that you see Jesus is not only the living water that satisfies us, but that Jesus is the living water that will bring life to the whole world. Again, in Ezekiel chapter 47, you know, Ezekiel is brought and we see this image that he brought me to the back door of the temple and behold, the water was issuing from below the temple and it went out. It goes from the temple, who again, Jesus says, I am the temple. And so from me, the Holy Spirit will come and it will indwell all believers and you will be filled up that the grace of God, the mercy of God will flow forth into our lives and into our hearts to fill us up so that we become a blessing to the whole world. Again, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, the hearts of believers. Now I want you to think about it in this way, is that you will be a blessing And again, in Zechariah 14, verse 8, On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. That's what we see. Out from Jerusalem. And they will bring life. Now, I want you to think about this. How are you, as a believer in Christ, if you have come and and you have drank deeply of Jesus, and has satisfied your soul, and you find forgiveness and pardon and joy and life, you become a blessing to other people. You see, some people are rivers of living water. And I'm going to take this from J.C. Ryle, who wrote, who wrote a chapter in his book, Holiness, on this particular 37 through 39. He says, some of the rivers of living water, some are rivers of living water while they live. You see, their their conversations, their preaching, their teaching, apostles, uh, St. Augustine, Calvin Luther, Owen, Billy Graham, Charles Spurgeon. These are guys who were rivers of living water while they lived. There are some who are living waters when they die. We just had a whole Sunday school class about martyrs. That these martyrs who die for their faith, their their courage of facing the, the king of terror, their boldness in the midst of pain and suffering, martyrs like John Huss or Latimer or St. Ignatius or Jerome of Prague or Jim Elliott, the works they did at their deaths were living waters to the whole world and they build us up in faith and we are strengthened as we think about them and blessed by them. Some are rivers of living water long after they die. We think about, you know, the old Puritans who wrote like Thomas Watson or, or even, you know, Bishop Ryle, J.C. Ryle or John Bunyan or John Owen or Richard Baxter or Robert Murray McShane. Their books, their writings live long, long after they are gone. But when we, but when we read of their faith and struggle, we are encouraged. Some believers are rivers of living water by the beauty, and I think this is mostly what we see Some believers are rivers of living waters by the beauty 
of their daily conduct and life. There are many quiet, gentle, consistent Christians who make no show and no noise in the world, and yet they exercise a deep influence for good on all those around them. Their love, their kindness, their sweet temper, their patience, their unselfishness. So seeds of thought and self-inquiry on many minds. You see, I think that we're called to grow in the fruit of the Spirit so that those around us might taste that fruit and they might long to have what we have. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, then you will be a blessing to those around you where the fruit of the Spirit are growing. And not only do we see this you know, being a blessing, you know, we see this, this is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, where all the nations of the, the world would be blessed through Abraham. Because here's the, here's the deal, is that many times when an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life will flow to others, it is this, that when you come to faith in Jesus, you are often not the only one who comes to faith in Jesus. We see that with the Philippian jailer. That this, you know, Philippian jailer, this Greek soldier, his whole family comes to faith in Jesus. We see that, you know, by words of faith, by, by this, this evangelistic, you know, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that when someone comes, we see whole families come because all of a sudden there's a difference and there's a witness and there's a testimony and we begin to see the Spirit of God moving. Let me, let me finish up with this story because Jesus is going to satisfy not only us, but he will also satisfy the whole world. I see this in this way. I have a, I have a friend of mine, uh, when we planted the church in Virginia, uh, I had a good friend of mine. He's, he's one of my best friends. His name is Bill Yoakum. And uh, at the time, our church office was next to, adjacent to, an insurance office. It was a Farm Bureau insurance office. And so we shared office space with this insurance company. And Bill was a new agent. And so I had been there about a year, and Bill had come on as a new agent. And I remember going into Bill's office and, and trying to just talk to him, really. And, and what Bill did was, Bill pretty much gave me the Heisman right? Like I go in, I'm like, hey, Bill, how are you? And you're like, oh, you're a pastor, you know, like stay away, you know, and I'm like, hey, you know, we, we would talk about football, we talk about other things. He's a huge Patriots fan, that was the big idol in his life, you know, I tried to topple it, but, you know, Tom Brady continues to rule and reign sometimes, but, you know, in, in the midst of his life, we would talk about football, and I remember talking to him about church one time, he goes, oh, yeah, 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 I'm a member of a church, I go to church, church is good, I'm good, George, you don't need to talk to me about the church thing. And I'm like, okay, man, all right, hey, you know, like, I mean, he came out, he knew that at some point I was going to bring up church, I was going to bring up Jesus, and he was ready, like, he was ready, like, I brought up church, and he came out swinging, right? He's like, leave me alone, don't talk to me about that stuff. Well, you know, we continued to talk, and I just became Bill's friend. We got to lunch, we hang out a little bit, and I remember saying, hey, Bill, you know, I know you talked about being a part of this church, but I don't think you go. And he goes, well, I don't really go. I just kind of told you that because I just wanted you to leave me alone. I said, well, would you, would you ever think about coming? To, why don't you just come visit? Just come visit church. And so Bill was like, oh, and we'd become friends. This is like, you know, probably a year later. And Bill was like, okay, I'll bring my wife and I'll bring my daughter. So Bill shows up at our church and, 
because he doesn't know any better because he hasn't been to church in a long time, he actually looks for me and sits right behind me. And like, and I don't know if you know this, I sit in the front row. You know, so he sits in the, like the second row behind me and then he hears the music and he hears the words of, of Jesus and all of a sudden something happens. And, and I can't say it was at the first time. I can't say if it was at the 10th time. All I know is that I baptized Bill because he loved Jesus and he knew that all of the things that he had been pursuing, all of the, the New England Patriot trinkets that he had been collecting were not going to satisfy his soul. He knew that if the Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl, your soul will still be empty. It's true. It really is. And when Bill came to faith, his wife came to faith. And his wife, Lisa, loves Jesus. And then we saw his daughter come to faith. I actually baptized Bill and his daughter on the same day. You see, what happens is, when in Bill's life, when the Spirit of God began to overflow in his heart, it, it flooded over and brought life to those around him. Even to another, but that's a story for another day. Brothers and sisters, if you're thirsty, if you're thirsty, come and drink deeply of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the way that you love us and care for us and guide and direct us. And Father, there were divisions among the people. Father, there were people who thought he was the Christ and there were others who were unsure. But Father, I pray, Lord, that there might be those today who hear the name of Jesus and they run, they run to the goodness of Jesus. And they delight in their souls and they find salvation and peace with you. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would not give ourselves to the false oasis of the world which promises joy but never delivers. I pray, Lord, that we would be liberated from the captivity of sin. You would break the bonds of our brokenness and bring healing to our souls. Oh, Father, may we drink deeply and might we become rivers of living water that bless those around us. Father, may it be said similar to what the Queen of Sheba said when she came to see all of Solomon's wealth, that when you look at the promises and the wealth of a believer, that those who are outside of faith might say, wow, even the half of what you told me was not true, that this is amazing. Help us to invite others to Jesus. Lord, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.